Geekish Cast, episode 100, featuring Ken Carlson of Dead Drift. This is Jeremy here from Geekish Cast. I uh, got so excited by this being our 100th episode, I forgot to introduce myself at the beginning. So when you hear a voice that sounds like me, just know that's me, Jeremy, from Geekish Cast. Welcome back to Geekish Cast, episode 100. Today I am joined by Ken Carlson of Dead Drift. How are you doing there? Doing well, man. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm doing quite well, thank you. And uh, thank you for taking the time to come on. I do appreciate it. I have to imagine that being an independent video creator, you are a pretty busy man. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I want to extend to you also gratitude for uh, having me on the show today. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you for taking the time. I, I do really appreciate it. Um, I, I'm going to be honest with you about something here. I came across your show because it had a purple chick with big boots. <laughs> uh, awesome. Yeah, um, I, I can't even remember what the con, how it was, or if I, you know, what it was. But that that was the picture or the video clip I saw at first, right. and I was like, well, what is this? And then I worked backwards from there. Okay, well, you know, I grabbed your attention, so I guess it worked if it got you to watch. Yeah, so. it it did its it did its part. Um, so you are, I believe, you work as a cinematographer. Was that your background? Yeah, I, I did a lot of cinematography, but also you know a lot of directing and writing of uh, independent uh, sketch comedy. I think is kind of where I got my start. I produced a sketch comedy TV show on public access here in Olympia, Washington, for about ten years uh, oh, wow. before moving on to just kind of doing uh, short films. And then uh, my buddy Maddie and I, who plays Captain Banks in Dead Drift, a few years back, came up with the idea for this web series. Okay. Well, um, you know, let's if you don't mind, can we we focus on your background a little bit and then we'll talk about the show? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. So, how did you Well, let's start with a simpler form here. Obviously, something you got bit with the entertainment bug at some point. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So, do you remember what it was that first grabbed you and you were like, "Okay, this is the direction I want to head with my life in?" You know, I remember when I was in elementary school, first grade, second grade, I was always, you know, drawing and I was always uh making up stories uh with different characters and a lot of times, you know, I'd write them down and then sometimes you would take uh, you know, you take your toys and you play with your toys and you kind of make a story where, uh, you know, you're playing with your G.I. Joes and Flint uh, wants to get Scarlet, but Cobra Commander has, like, stolen her heart. So, you know, Flint's got to, you know, do whatever he's got to do to get Scarlet. Actually, I think it was maybe it was Duke and Scarlet and Flint and Lady J. That's that's right. It was Flint and Lady J. My bad. But anyways, and then uh, a few years later, my mom got this VHS-C camcorder, which I don't know if you're familiar with VHS-C, but it was like this tiny little VHS tape that fit inside of a larger VHS adapter, and that's how you put it in a VCR. I do remember those, yes. <laughs> and it was this kind of cool mechanical process that happened when you put it in the adapter. Um, and I had Ninja Turtle movies, so I used this VHS-C camera to make a stop-motion movie with my Ninja Turtle toys. And, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I guess just as long as I can remember, I've always been interested in storytelling and you know, trying to, trying to world-build and tell stories. Okay, so was your let's let's see here. Did you follow that? 
as a uh, your educational background, did you follow it that way, or did you kind of jump into it? Give us a little idea there. Uh, I kept diving into it in, in different ways, and then uh, when I was in high school, uh, I found a television production class in high school, so I got into that and started learning how to edit on uh, three-quarter-inch tape, which is a, a definitely a relic of a, of a bygone era. Uh, it's like a VHS tape, except it's uh, bigger, you know, and... Um, so the, the TV production class kind of led into getting together with a bunch of friends and starting the public access sketch comedy show where, you know, we were heavily influenced by Monty Python and Red Dwarf. And we just we would write silly jokes or scenes and then uh, we'd get together and we'd film them and we'd put them together and we'd put them on public access. And then, you know, everyone over the years, people would fall away as, you know, life interrupted or whatnot. And. I was kind of the one person that really stuck with it as this is really what I wanted to do. Uh, unfortunately, I, I never went into any kind of formal classical education with it or anything like that. It's just kind of something I kept doing independently. Mm -hmm. um, but the public access show that I did for 10 years definitely served as a proxy for a formal education. So, you know, I learned how to run cameras. I learned how to edit, uh, learned how to, how to write and uh, how to put a show together. Uh, I think in the 10 years that Damn It, This Is Stupid, that's the name of the show, was on the air, I think we put together 36 episodes, or maybe it was 40, something like that. Um, but yeah, so it was so, definitely just doing it was, was my education. Okay, no, I think that's fair, because that's how a lot, of, uh, a lot of people come into creative lines. Uh, I was talking to a guy the other day at a convention here in California and he's he does graphic arts and his own comic book series, but he started off as a guitarist in a punk band who did all their own, all their posters. Nice. He did his own posters and then uh, yeah, he draws comics. And that, and that grew into his comic business. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you No, know, it's always cool to see people kind of come from a DIY background like that. And, you know, making a show for 10 years, I'm sure, is as good as any uh, two- to four-year college will teach you about television production. I definitely uh, feel that I'm fairly competent with, with, you know, any of the equipment that I use, and, and I can come into a situation and work that. Uh, there is kind of a drawback to it, though, and that is that, you know, in a, in a formal education, one of the most valuable aspects of it is the context that you make. Mm -hmm. And I, so I never really got the benefit of those industry contacts. Um, well, let me ask you, since one of the things I'm discovering now, um, my background is uh, plumbing sales. Okay. But I, I just happen to be a giant nerd, so I, I'm kind of knowledgeable about, you know, the stuff I talk about. Right. Uh, but these days with technology the way it is, I could learn how to edit sound pretty quickly. I mean, you know, it's it's not professional level. I don't believe that it is. But I also found that I could reach out to professional people pretty easily and say seven times out of ten actually get a response. Are you finding that to kind of help where maybe the contacts you would have made when you were younger can partially be filled in by having access that you wouldn't have had before? Through technology? Absolutely. I think uh, the technology has definitely aided that. Social media specifically has, has made it, you know, so much easier to get your content out there in front of eyeballs um, mm -hmm. and to make those contacts. I would say that for me personally, the 7 out of 10 number is not what I've experienced. It's probably a little bit less than that for me. Uh, well, that was not a scientific number. <laughs> totally, no doubt. Um, but yeah, it's definitely... I mean, before, back in the day, what would you do? I, I remember trying to do it with uh, Damn It, This Is Stupid, the TV show. I was trying to 
you know, I remember hearing about how Tom Green did a public access TV show and that's how he was discovered was he would just, he would spam out his tapes to, uh, you know, different producers and whatnot. And someone finally saw it and picked him up and put him on MTV. So that's what I was kind of trying to do with damn it. This is stupid is I would make copies of the, what I felt were the best episodes. And I would try to find, uh, contact information for, for different people that I thought might give this a chance and then, uh, you know, give us a chance and say, Hey, we'll, uh, you know, we'll give you some stupid amount of money to, to make your show. Um, well, come to find out, it's definitely not as easy as that, you know, and the more, the more I learn about the entertainment industry and, and specifically, uh, with regards to video, even people that make shows that get on Netflix or major networks, they're going through the same struggle, you know, oh, absolutely. They're, they're trying to get their stuff out there. And, you know, people shoot pilots all the time that are funded with tons of money that never go anywhere where you got, you know, the case of Firefly where, you know, you get a show on TV for one season and it's canceled. So, I mean, I guess that struggle's going on at all levels, but the technology I think has definitely made it easier to, to get the word out and find people. Oh, sure. Well, it, it just, I think it lowers the bar of entry. Because you can produce, and we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about your show specifically, but if you want to make a comic book or a video short now, it's much cheaper than it would have been just 12 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Hands down. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, at one point when I was producing Damn It, This Is Stupid, some friends and I that were working on the show at the time had decided that we wanted to make a feature film. So we went down to the uh, the local film society in our town and attended a meeting to talk about making a movie. And basically what we came away with was that it was going to cost us $3,000 in film stock alone, and that's if we left no room for, you know, uh, errors in shooting. That's, you know, only if we paid for the stock that we actually used just to shoot a film on film. And this was in the 90s. Um, and there was no way we could afford that. It just wasn't possible for us. And then now you've got you know, DSLR cameras that you can buy for five, $600 that shoot quality. That's almost as good as those film cameras we were shooting on back then. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's, I, I remember I read a book that was called like how to shoot a film on a used car budget. Right. And it, I mean, it, it was down and dirty too. It was like, you know, you buy this camera and then you return it and tell them you never used it. <laughs> and, just stopped, you know? and it was still 25, 30 grand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, that was, yeah, that was probably late eighties, early nineties as well. Right. Um, but like you're saying these days you get a 600, well, there goes, that's all the gray hounds out there. <laughs> uh, but you can get a camera for a reasonable amount of money. Film is a thing of the past for the most part. Right. Yeah. I mean, unless, unless you've got the money and you're, uh, what's his name? Chris Nolan or Tarantino mm -hmm. and you, you know, you want to shoot it on film for esoteric reasons. Right. You insist on that grainy texture right. when it's played. Right. Yeah. You got people like Michael Mann and David Fincher that are shooting on digital and making, you know, gorgeous movies. Mm hmm. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really, it's all about composition and their directorial eye at that point. Story, story is king. Uh, it's, it's to me, you know, a lot of times people will ask me, you know, what did you shoot Dead Drift on? And I'll tell them, you know, Dead Drift is shot on a Panasonic GH2. But what Dead Drift was shot on is kind of irrelevant. What matters about it or what matters about anything that you're watching is the story and the characters. Do the, do the, does the story grab your attention? Do the characters, do you engage with the characters? Do you want to know more about who they are, where they're going, what they're doing? And 
you know, if you shot it on a VHS or a phone, it makes really no difference. It's, is the story good? Are the characters compelling? Yeah, exactly. Um, I watch a lot. Uh, well, my very favorite television series is called Corner Gas. It's a Canadian TV show. Corner Gas? Corner Gas, yeah. Okay, interesting. It's been off the air for a few years now, um, but it's shot like a Canadian TV show. That is to say that sometimes the sound and lighting aren't what we're used to here in the States. Right. It's just, you know, it's just up there. That's how they were shooting at the time. Right. But you do. You engage with the characters. There's actually an episode where they're trying to put together a um, oh, a show for cable access, and one of the characters goes on a tirade about how it's not about the quality of the shoot or the film or the lighting or this, that, and the other. You know, do you do you like the characters? It's a very meta episode. Right. Yeah, I, I just loved it. Um, so anyhow, um, let's go ahead. We'll talk about your show, Dead Drift. Here's the th- so when I was first watching, I was trying to figure out who the writer was, and I, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised when I find out it's almost the second banana character when you're writing a comedy. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can give yourself the best lines in, and but really make somebody else look like the uh, the jerk ass of the whole program if you want to. I, I, but I feel like that was not but, intentional. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's a friend of yours playing the lead guy. <laughs> yeah. Huh? I mean, yeah. We're all friends, but yeah. Yeah. Well, so give me a little bit about the idea, uh, the genesis of the thought, and kind of what you were shooting for, or how the idea came about to make a sci-fi comedy. Well, uh, as I said earlier, uh, Red Dwarf is definitely one of uh, the biggest influences in in my uh, personal uh, education in terms of uh, comedy, or just preferences or whatever. Um, science fiction is... You know, hands down, absolutely my most favorite genre of of any form of entertainment, whether it's, you know, literature, comic books, uh, TV, movies, uh, whatever it is, it's that's my jam, you know. So I had done a lot of different things in the past um, where science fiction wasn't really a factor. It was it was all just either sketch comedy of silly situations or short films that were, you know, we were trying to trying to make a cop drama or or whatnot. And so this is the first time that I really no holds barred. I said, let I want to do something that is science fiction, but I also want to do something that's comedy because that's, you know, uh, I don't know what it is about comedy, but being able to laugh, you know, at yourself, being able to laugh at the world and the ridiculous situations. What's, I mean, the Joker's line from the killing joke where he says, you know, it's all just one big joke. And, uh, you know, why am I the only one laughing, et cetera. If, if you can make someone laugh, you know, they'll remember it and uh, you can brighten someone's day. Um, you know, people are going through all kinds of messed up stuff. And, and if you can just just bring a grin to their face by, you know, making a joke about something that we we have all dealt with, then uh, you've helped, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. No, no, I, I think that makes sense. It's it's the uh, the what is most universal feels the most personal kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And and humor can often be, well, humor can be mean, but it can also be very loving at the same time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because you know, uh, well, you do it in your show too. There's also there's the sick burn, but there's also the hey, you know, we can get through this. Right. Yeah. And that's and that's definitely what I wanted to do is is tell a story that was kind of definitely inspired by Red Dwarf in that there are some fascinating science fiction concepts going on, but it's all really silly. 
but there's also some very real human characters that are very flawed human characters that, you know, at the beginning I was, I was talking with uh, Maddie, the guy who plays Captain Banks uh, a couple weeks ago when we were on our road trip to Gen Con. And, uh, he was saying that on rewatching the episodes, he was a little frustrated that Banks' character is is completely unlikable. And uh, I said, no, that's that's intentional. Banks' character is supposed to be unlikable at first so that over the course of the series, you grow to like him. You know, you, you grow to – at first you're like, wow, this guy is such a douchebag. What a dick. He's such a jerk. But eventually you come to empathize with him and and root for him. And I feel like if – this character's gone from being a jerk to someone that you're actually rooting for, then that's been earned. And if we can earn that through the course of the show, then I think we've done a good job. So your two main characters that you start with are uh, Captain Banks. Captain Banks and Morris, the mechanic. Morris, was it Maurice Morris the third? Yep, Maurice Morris the third. And you have kind of a novel way that you shoot this because they're both in a different part of the same ship. And for the most part, at least through the beginning, everybody interacts through a view screen conversation. Right. Um, so was there, I mean, did you decide that it was going to be one person, one room? Was that the the effect that you had decided on early? Is that something you came to as you were developing the story? Yeah, no, that was decided on pretty early because the whole series was based on a, a short skit film that we had shot earlier where rather than the characters engaging directly with each other over a video chat, it was essentially a series of logs that they had recorded uh, that told a story about, you know, them falling apart. So kind of to, to utilize maybe a little bit the, the YouTube vlog format, mm-hmm. we went into it intentionally wanting that these characters would all be speaking directly to the camera all the time. And that was limiting but I think it was, it was, and it was limiting and it was challenging to overcome those limitations because it's like we violated one of the fundamental rules of filmmaking, and that is show me, don't tell me. You know, when we're doing the video chat format, everything has got to be told. You know, almost nothing can be shown. So that was definitely a challenge to see if we could st- tell this story by by telling it rather than showing it. And it almost, you know, almost works as a as a radio serial. Um, but there, there are definitely some things that happen that go down that you have to see to understand what's actually happening. But, yeah, that was absolutely an intentional choice uh, to shoot it that way. I, I thought that was interesting. I thought it really became interesting what you're talking about specifically with the d- describing it rather than showing it. There's a fight scene that plays out like he's reading the results of a Final Fantasy fight scene. Yes, uh, that's in the last episode, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's fucking hilarious, first <laughs> off. Awesome. Because it took me a second to realize exactly what it was. I'm like, oh, now I get it. Right. But uh, yeah. See, I would have. That's you know, that's one of the examples of overcoming the limitations of the format. Is like, there's no way we're going to be able to show that fight with mm-hmm. with our level of budget and 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 tech. That's just not something we're going to be able to do. So, what's the next best thing? Because you know, I feel like this fight is pretty important to the story. Well, let's have one of the guys watching it and telling everyone else what he's seeing while it's happening. And, like, traditionally, I think that would just be considered bad writing, but it was it was part of the format. Well, you know, it almost it almost felt like I mean, you definitely have a lot of Star Trek influence in this show. Absolutely. But the the way that felt was almost like an old RKO uh, uh, serialized movie 
where you can't show it because the technology just didn't exist to do it. So they were very talky, you know? Yeah. That's kind of what that reminded me of a little bit. Well, cool. I'm, I'm definitely glad to hear that it uh, got some laughs because that's... Yeah. Well, yeah, and since that was, uh, I'm sure, the whole point of what you were shooting for there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so go ahead and give us a little bit. I mean, you know, uh, give us your elevator pitch for the show and uh, kind of the idea behind it. So that way we get a sense of what you what you were what your show is about and what you were about doing it. So Dead Drift is the story of two idiots who do not get along with each other and uh, they're they're on a ship that's falling apart trying to make it out to Saturn's moon Titan. And uh along the way they they run into trouble when uh, the mechanic uh sleeps with uh the daughter of the commander of Mars station. Uh so he's after them and they have a a hologram who is kind of a smart Alec and, and she helps basically to keep them alive. And then when they get out there, they meet some aliens that uh, have come from a very long ways away. And one of the aliens uh, inadvertently awakens this uh, slumbering ancient evil force uh, that now threatens to kill them all. And so they've got to finally learn to, to come together and put aside their, uh, their petty differences and, and work together to fight this monster. Yeah. That um, I, I do like how you kind of crossed your semi-traditional space exploration story with H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, whose novel, <laughs> you know. It's a, I think it's a, H.P. Lovecraft is a great source of uh, story, especially because he's all, you know, he's all public domain at this point, so everyone can use the stuff that he created, which which is great. And, you know, and we've gotten into a time where nothing anybody creates anymore is going to be public domain, uh, you know, th- right. thanks to the mouse. And, uh, yeah. Sonny Bono. Right. Uh, so it's cool that I, I love human uh, stories, you know, and just just the lore and the mythos that, that we've created in the past thousands of years. Like, I, I think that uh, the Bible for me is a fantastic source of storytelling material. Uh, you know, any ancient religion or ancient mythos. And I had a buddy who was uh, angry at uh, Ridley Scott's new Robin Hood movie because of how it turned the Robin Hood lore uh, and changed it around, and I'm like, no, man, that's good. That's good that we're we're taking old stories and putting new spins on them. Like that's important. We we need to keep doing that. Like not only do we need to keep making new stories, but we need to keep reinterpreting these old ones because these stories are part of who we are uh, as a species. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's you know, we still have the 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 tale of Gilgamesh, which by all rights should be lost to us. Fortunately, we can still find it out there. Right. But it is the prototypical, I mean, almost it's superhero tale as well as the rise and fall of a kingdom because of one man. Right, and it's like it's, it's like literally the oldest story there is. I, as far as I know, it is the oldest story that we have that's in basically its total form right. on the planet. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Yeah, that is. It's just outstanding. You can do that. I mean, the Bible was the Old Testament specifically. Pretty amazing that we still have all that. That that's been kept together for. 4,000, 6,000 years, whatever it is, yeah, a yeah. really long time. Um, and then the fact that there's something out there that's just a, a little bit older is just outstanding yeah, to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so growing up or, you know, in your past, what were some some franchises or things that you were a giant fan of? I mean, what did you really geek out for? Oh, man, all kinds of stuff. Uh Star Trek. I remember watching Star Trek, uh, the original series, with my dad. 
when I was, gosh, four or five years old, and I loved it, and I think that, that kind of got me hooked. Um, and then when I got into comic books, uh, the X-Men was really, really a big thing for me, reading the X-Men comic books. Uh, the Ninja Turtles were, were a huge thing for me back when the toys and the cartoon first came out. Um, those are probably three of my biggest uh, loves and influences are Star Trek, the X-Men, and the Ninja Turtles. Um, I was definitely into Star Wars, too. Uh, I was never the uh, the uber geek about Star Wars the way many of my friends were. I was always way more into Star Trek, especially after The Next Generation came out. And that was really when I started to think, okay, this is a, this is a cool thing that's going on here that uh, you know Roddenberry and these people have done with this with this show is – you know, we're looking at humanity in the future where uh, all of our petty squabbles have kind of been put aside uh, and, and, you know, we're united and, and exploring the beyond. So, uh, yeah, what else? There was there was lots of other stuff, too. Like, I was really into He-Man. <laughs> oh, sure. That's um, I look. I actually love I don't know if you're old enough to remember the comic books that came with the He-Man toys. You know, oh man, so I had a bunch of the toys. There were probably comic books that came with them. I don't remember them really. Yeah, see the way that was original. So the rumor is, and we'll never know if this is completely true or not. They were going to do a Conan the Barbarian toy line. And then that first Conan movie came out. They're like, "Well, this will never work as a kids toy line." I was just reading about that yesterday. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's a true story or apocryphal. I really don't know. Right. I was reading about it on Wikipedia because I just watched the episode of Stranger Things where uh, the girl sees He-Man on the TV, and I was like, wait a second, this takes place in 83. I was like, was He-Man out in 83? I don't remember because I was so young. And right. uh, so I looked it up to find out when He-Man actually originally aired, and it was 83. And that's where I read about all that uh, Conan the Barbarian toy line and whatnot. Right. So the original comics that came with it, Eternia was a blasted post-apocalyptic world. Oh, interesting. And there were computers and laser guns and crap laying around, but there was also magic. Okay. And Castle Grayskull itself was kind of a Lovecraftian, other-dimensional being that put itself there. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, you know what? I, I'll send you the link on email or something when we get done here. There's actually a collection of all the old comics where they put them into a hardbound book for like 30 or 40 bucks. Okay, that's super cool. Yeah, it's something worth checking out. I love when people take that kind of future and past and smash it together. Right, that absolutely. That's outstanding stuff. And so when I was young... I'm. I was born in '73, so I'm guessing I'm probably ten years older than you, at least. I was born in '78, so pretty close. Oh, so okay, so yeah, so we're five years apart. So we're you know right in that ballpark. So I had a brother who was ten years younger than me. So my He-Man was the one with laser guns and this, that, and the other. His He-Man was Prince Adam. Okay. But because of our age difference, you know, we had you know he got all my toys, but they were a whole different animal than what I had. <laughs> right. You know, so that was always what I was like, huh. I don't think you're playing with those guys right <laughs> You're doing it wrong. Yeah, that's all wrong. Um, now, see, I am from George Lucas's hometown. Okay. And I was four when Star Wars came out. So you want to talk about a guy who was, like, primed to be a giant Star Wars nerd. That was me. Right. You were the you were the target audience. Yeah. I was, I mean, I had the toys before the movie came out. It was, I mean, that, that was me. <laughs> so... Um, this show actually started because last year um, uh, Force Awakens came out, right? and my wife got sick of hearing me talk about Star Wars for three weeks. She's like, there's got to be somebody else out there who'll listen to you. 
<laughs> and, so and you found some people. So I found some That's people, awesome. yeah. Yeah. So um, you and I, I don't want to give away too much. I want people to go watch your show, which is at uh, deaddriftshow.com, probably the best place for them to watch Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You can see it all at deaddriftshow.com. Yeah. And you, where do you tweet from, by the way? Uh, it's twitter.com slash deaddriftshow, I believe. Okay. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me double check that real quick. I'm pretty sure that's oh. what it is. Yeah. And if not, we'll make sure we get it right by the end. So. Yeah, yeah, it's twitter.com slash deaddriftshow or at deaddriftshow, however you do it. There we go. Yeah, perfect. So um, you kind of end in a spot where the show could be over or you could keep going. What what direction are you are you leaning right now? Do you want to keep going with this or do you want to move on to something new? Do you want to do both? You know, for the longest time as, as I was approaching the end, you know, when I could finally see the end in sight, um, I was thinking that I wanted to move on to something else and do something else and maybe come back to this to this dead drift world later. Um, mm. But as you said, it's a pretty, pretty big cliffhanger that the, that the series ends on. And now that we're finished and it's all done, we're kind of at a point where we've actually built enough of an audience. I mean, the audience is now the largest it's ever been during the run of the series, which is the way things should work, I guess. Uh, but, but now I'm like, Hey, you know, maybe it's time to kind of strike while the iron is hot. And, uh, one day I sat down and I was like, I'm just going to write some more episodes or I'm going to, you know, try to write some episodes and a bunch of ideas that have been stewing around just kind of all flooded out. And I wrote like six episodes in a couple of days. Uh, so at this point I would definitely love to move forward with more. I've talked to all the cast, uh, and everybody's on board with, with doing more and moving forward with it. Uh, I think the biggest caveat this time is if there's going to be more, I'm going to need to figure out a way to delegate, a lot of the responsibilities out amongst more shoulders than just mine. Cause in the original 16 episodes I did, you know, I don't know what a percentage is, but I did all the post-production and I was, you know, the producer and the director. Uh, but there were, there were a group of four of us who would direct each other kind of, and the writing was shared amongst four people. Uh, we needed someone to do the digital effects, the VFX, and I had never done anything like that, but I had to basically teach myself how to do VFX to finish the show up. And I think it would have looked quite a bit better if I had gotten someone who knew what they were doing to do it. So this time around, essentially, I would love to be able to get uh, a larger group of people in on the project to, to help create it this time. And uh, paying people would be awesome as well. Well, that's always nice. Right. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, everybody that worked on Dead Drift uh, donated, you know, with the exception of, I think, one, maybe two, uh, you know, behind-the-scenes roles. Everything was – people donated their time. And, you know, without those people donating their time, the project would never have happened. Um, but this time I would I would really like to be able to give people, even if it's not much, just a small stipend, you know, for helping out. Right. So I think we'll, we'll, we're definitely going to look into pursuing some crowdfunding uh, activities for if we do any more. Okay. Well, and you guys already have a built-in audience, so it should be, quote-unquote, should be easier for you to do a little crowdfunding now. Uh, yeah, I would I would like to think so, but I don't know. The crowdfunding game is uh, definitely tricky. You, you follow it at all, and you see that there are tons of projects that uh, people are putting up that don't get funded. And, uh, oh yeah, well, and I think I think people got an unrealistic expectation probably over the last two years that like, because you hear about these guys that raise two million dollars or whatever the number right. is. So when you see somebody throw out something they're trying to raise seven hundred and fifty to print a children's book and they don't reach it, 
I'm sure that's a gut punch to the person that happens. Oh to. man, that's got to be terrible. Yeah, you know, and it's it's you know here's the thing. Also, I think people that would fund something have a bit of fatigue kicking in as well. I think that's because, definitely true. Yeah, because everything's been crowdfunded for the last three years. I mean, look, the Veronica Mars movie was crowdfunded. Right, and Alan you know, Tudyk's uh, series. Yeah, and when those guys are crowdfunding, you know, I mean, basically Hollywood is being subsidized by crowdfunding now. Right. Yeah, when uh, I remember when Zach Braff came out with his crowdfunding campaign and uh, the Internet kind of went uh, – you know, nuts about it because people were talking about why is Zach Braff, who can get money from producers, reaching out to fans? And it's like, well, you know, that's just that's just part of the game. That's that's where we're at now. Yep, that's where it goes. You can now. complain about it, or you can you can deal with it. You know, mm-hmm. um, so it's definitely a mixed bag, I think. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm I'm curious about with people doing it because um, I think there was the assumption there for a while that anybody could crowdfund and raise a whole bunch of money. Right. And now I think there's there's starting to be a little blowback from it. Absolutely. And, I, yeah, it was going to be this thing where crowdfunding was going to be the new way that things were funded and Hollywood was going to be running scared. And it's like, no, that's that's not the case. There's definitely fatigue, I think, like you're saying. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like when I talk to people who are like, hey, when marijuana becomes legal, I'm going to make so much money. And I'm like, <laughs> Marlboro is going to crush you when marijuana becomes legal. Exactly. Yeah. That's don't don't think you can play in those games, Junior. And that's kind of what I've started to see with uh, with crowdfunding. Hollywood started to get in there, and all of a sudden, you know, these numbers start flying around. Or I don't know if you're familiar with Star Trek Axanar at all. I am. Yes, I followed that closely. That's you know, uh, you know, Star Star Trek is uh, pretty pretty close to my heart. So yeah. Um. So, and we're not going to delve too deep into this. Are you pro Axanar or anti Axanar? Oh man, that's a tough stance to uh, make me take. But okay. No, I'll be straight up. I'll be straight up. I am anti-Axanar. Okay, good. Me too. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and, and I, I think I've stepped on my dick. Up. Yeah, I've stepped on my dick pretty bad a few times because of that. Right. But no, I know a lot of uh, a lot of Star Trek fans don't like to hear that, man. But I think they crossed a lot of lines. Well, you know, and and like I said, I don't want to get too deep into it because I've done it pretty bad in the past. But when you pay yourself to make somebody else's property into a movie. And then when you turn around and sue sue CBS and say you don't really own Star Trek, right? Well, you know, now you've just gone too far. Yeah, like what they're what they're doing is kind of, well, like you said, not wanting to get too deep into it, but it's kind of straight up theft what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think I think people should be able to make Star Trek and Star Wars fan films if they want to, but if you're building an independent studio on the backs of fans that are trying to support Star Trek, that's not right. Yeah. And as a, as an as an independent creator who is struggling to get attention on an original intellectual property, I all the time I think, you know, hey, if I were just using the X-Men or these pre-established characters that have a following built up over 40 years of someone else's hard work, it would be a lot easier for me to get eyeballs on my content. But that would be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Especially since you know you can you can scrape the files you can file the numbers right off of it and you can make a space exploration show where the ships look a little different and the the aliens are called something different but people will look at it and go oh this is like star trek right yeah they'll get it i mean we understand when you see a superhero that it's like superman but it's not necessarily superman yeah absolutely you can you can parody you know and parodies oh, yeah. you know parodies protected by law but uh yeah. 
Well, all you got to do is change the details, and all of a sudden, it's not under trademark and copyright now. Right. Yeah, it's it's you know um, the original novels, John Carter on Mars, are all public domain. Right. But the trademarks are still in place, so you could do you know, you know Peter Smith from uh, Nevada. <laughs> on Mars. Yeah, and nobody could do anything about right. it. Did you uh, did you see John Carter? Uh, if I have to be honest, I'll say yes. <laughs> okay, because I saw it and I actually enjoyed it. I didn't think it was that bad. It okay. So overall, um, it looked excellent. The production value I thought was pretty good. What they did at the end to try to make it with the um, uh, the Tharns coming to Earth, I thought was unnecessary. I know what they were trying to do, but I don't think they hit it. And why, oh God, would you make a John Carter movie and not leave the word Mars in it? Yeah, that is that is a huge marketing blunder. Uh, yeah, I would have called that movie The Warlord of Mars or Warriors of Mars or something like that. And, you know, that would have been the central, you know, that would have been the whole point. Right, of it. definitely the worst naming uh, of, a, yeah. of a film ever, almost. Yeah, I, I can't think of anything where I just, I can't. Besides a few small things here and there, like I sometimes think DC Comics is trying to kill Captain Marvel. I kind of felt like Disney was trying to kill John Carter of Mars. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't get into those kind of conspiracy theories. Very <laughs> right. Often, but sometimes like the, the blunder is so obvious that you're like, so what what the hell really happened here? You know? Right. And I mean, if you want to get into those conspiracy theories, I think maybe rather than that they're trying to kill John Carter – Maybe somebody was trying to kill the career of whoever wanted John Carter to happen. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of the thing. It's It makes you wonder if there was, like you're saying, just a weakness out there that somebody was trying to bury in somebody. Right. Yeah. It's just such a weird thing because John Carter should be a give me. That should not be a hard thing to sell. No, it shouldn't, really. I mean, the yeah. story is freaking awesome. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's big battles, awesome aliens, half-naked women, swords and guns. What could you possibly want that this movie doesn't have? Right, no, I mean, it had uh, Moon Bloodgood in it. I was like, yeah, all right, I'm on board. Yeah, exactly. She was the only good thing in that Terminator movie. Oh, my gosh, was she in a Terminator movie? She was in Salvation. Okay. <laughs> she, I'm sorry, let me put it, she was topless in Salvation. I might have to watch that again. Yeah, go, go check it out. It's... <laughs> Keep the fast forward button. Oh man, nearby. Genesis though. What a, oh my goodness. I didn't even try. They couldn't even entice me from Oh my goodness. I was I was so afraid of it. First off, I'm a little leery of time travel to begin with. Right. It's a time travel stories they make my head hurt. It's you gotta do it really well. You gotta have a really yeah. strong script. Uh like Back to the Future, I thought did a good job. It still left some paradoxes in place, though. Totally. Um, I Back to the Future is, I think, my favorite movie probably of all time. I think it's. Oh really? I think it's. I think it's a perfect film. Um, you know, maybe a little hyperbole there, but I, I think it's nothing that happens in that movie doesn't have a place. Like everything that happens has, oh, has a purpose. You are correct. It is very terse writing. It is very tight as far as the scripting and the the plot go. Right. Yeah. Everything everything clicks together. It's like watching cogs turn. Right. Absolutely. And that's that's I think part of what I love so much about it is it's just I think it's just a perfect movie. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite Star Trek movie? Yeah. First Contact. Uh, that's the wrong answer. The right <laughs> answer is Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan. Yeah, man. I I just I, I love Captain Picard, man. Uh, no, you're right. Uh, First Contact's an excellent movie. 
it it unfortunately is the only one the only good next generation movie though isn't it yeah you know i wanted to rewatch nemesis because i only saw it one time uh i need to rewatch nemesis but i i think you're probably right actually i i do like generations when i first really? first saw it i didn't like generations at all i rewatched it recently and i was like okay this is actually a nice you know kind of handing off of the torch uh movie and it was enjoyable I, so so i guess let me defend my love of uh, first contact here Sure. No, no, no. And, and I, I agree with you. First Contact's an outstanding movie. Um, Wrath of Khan is, I, I think if you're looking at it purely purely cinematically uh, as a film, the Wrath of Khan is, is superior to First Contact. Um, but I guess part of my love of First Contact is my love of The Next Generation and uh, my love of Picard and the Borg as, as one of the most terrifying enemies that, you know, that exists in the Star Trek universe. Um, but I think as a film, Wrath of Khan is, is definitely better. Well, so did you watch Voyager? Yes. Uh, were you a fan of Voyager? I like Voyager a lot. Um, Voyager is also, I think, the most frustrating Star Trek series to me because I think that of all the Star Trek series, of all the Next Generation series, it held the most promise and was the biggest letdown because it had this premise that was amazing and, and it should, I, I think it should have been a serial, but there were too many episodes that were filler episodes or, you know, alien of the week episodes. And yeah, I don't know, man, just unfulfilled potential in Voyager. Um, yeah, but you know what, that, that was a product of its time as well. You had to do 23 episodes. Right. And then I think when seven of nine shows up, you definitely see that it, it turns into the seven of nine and, and holographic doctor show. Uh, which was frustrating because there were so many other characters that could have been compelling, like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Harry Kim. Completely mm-hmm. wasted character in that show. Right. Well, and you'll see also, well, let me. I'm going to address two things here real quickly and ask your opinion on them. I agree with you. I think the Borg are just pants-shittingly terrifying um, in their earliest form, right. you know, when the next gen brought them in, when they assimilate Picard. Before they got nerfed in Voyager. It, that's yeah, that's where I was headed with that. I think their overuse in Voyager, they're just too cute after that point, you know. <laughs> yeah. And the, Jerry Ryan, when they brought her in and she was full Borg, you could see her body through that outfit. Right. You're just like, that is a really, really hot member of the Borg. Where, where is this whole thing going? After that point, notice that Enterprise didn't bring in a hot chick. They started with one. That's <laughs> very true. Yes. Yeah. And I think they kind of went, well, we need to TNA up Star Trek. Now, I love the original Star Trek series, but I don't think the high-mindedness of it existed until the 1970s, after Gene Roddenberry started to really buy his own mythology. Because my view on the original Star Trek was that was a lot of really hot chicks and really short skirts. Absolutely. And Kirk tried to hump, punch, or shoot his way out of every situation. Yeah. I, I think Star Trek has always been about sex, but I think after Next Generation it was less so until Voyager and Enterprise. I think you're I think you're one hundred percent right on that. Uh the high mindedness I think, like you said, really didn't come around much until later and I think the next generation was the first one to really make that a central focus. And right. it, it, it and, I, and I liked it. it. Yeah, I I yeah. liked it too, but it did, like you say, it did desexualize it. And then, you know, I said when 7 and 9 came on the Voyager, it became the 7 and 9 show. That's a complaint, 
on one hand, but on the other hand, I absolutely loved it uh, because some of those yeah. costumes that they put her in were just downright uh, amazing. Yeah, that's I just so I'm a huge original series fan. I love Next Generation. I had a really hard time with Deep Space Nine, Enterprise, and Voyager. I just they never really did much for me. So I'm always interested in talking to other Star Trek fans, kind of where they came in on that. Right. I mean, I've been called an apostate and not a not a true Star Trek fan <laughs> too. I'm certainly not not uh, so hardcore that I'm going to call anyone an apostate or uh, call for you to be burned at the stake or anything like that. Yeah. I definitely recognize that. As much as I love these stories, I recognize that they're an entertainment product, and I know right. the sacrifices that have to be made and the concessions that have to be made in order to bring a vision to the screen in a commercial fashion. Uh, so I understand why 7 and 9 became the focus of Voyager, because they wanted to keep making a show. And right. uh, they needed money. You know, They need to sell advertising. And, hey, Jerry Ryan sells advertising. And, uh, yeah, I, I definitely sell my soap on that channel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely think that the, the original series and The Next Generation are the purest if you're looking at it from a, you know, a purity standpoint. Um, but I enjoyed all of the shows. I enjoyed Deep Space Nine. I enjoyed Voyager. I enjoyed Enterprise. Um, but none of them, to me, ever captured the magic of the original series or uh, Next Generation. And who knows? Part of that might be I was just so much younger when I watched those shows. Oh, absolutely. It could be. And they were new. Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation. Because you got to remember, Star Trek The Next Generation, very little reference to the original TV series for the first four years. Right. They really, besides a handful of times, they really stood on their own two feet. Um, so it was new territory. And then Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, it was a lot of retread because it had been so recent. Right. Yeah. Well, at least that's my take on it. Um, one more oddball. Did you ever watch Babylon five? You know, I, uh, <laughs> I have never watched Babylon five. Okay. Is, uh, I have heard that, uh, I should for many years. And one, there's a couple, a couple of the guys that are fans of dead drift on Twitter who, uh, are frequently comparing, uh, one of the actors from Babylon five to, uh, the Schneider clones in, uh, in dead drift. I can't remember the actor's name though. Now Patricia, Patricia Tallman yes, was the actress. exactly. Yeah. Patricia Tallman. I can see that. I could absolutely see that. Hey, so was it hard to find 60 girls who look just like each other to film your show? <laughs> no, we actually just, there's a cloning facility up in Tacoma. So we just, oh, uh, awesome. Yeah. Washington is so ahead of California in medical technology. Right, we got the, the marijuana and uh, the cloning facilities, so it's cool. Yeah. But you know what I did notice last time I was in Washington? You try to order a Bud Light at a bar, and the bartender actually punches you in the mouth. Oh, my goodness. It's ridiculous. Yeah, they're like, microbrewery or nothing, California guy. Yeah, no, it's you, you need to order a quintuple IPA or GTFO. <laughs> That's a good one. That should actually be a beer brand name. <laughs> quintuple IPA or GTFO. Yeah, it's it's one or the other, buddy. Yeah, IPA has become this uh, this contest to see who can, you know, out-hoppy the God, other beer. I don't. People often – are you a beer guy? You know, I used to really be into beers. I like a lot of uh, porters and stouts and whatnot, but uh, these days I mostly just drink whiskey. Oh, nice. Oh, God, I could do a whole episode just about that. <laughs> uh, see, my thing is with beer, people take these IPAs and they confuse hoppiness with complexity. Yes. And hop, look, hoppiness can add to complexity, but it in and of itself is not a complex flavor. Ah, so what's your favorite whiskey? Uh, Jameson. Irish whiskey. Buttery, simple. 
Huh, not a bad choice. Yeah, I'm definitely not uh, an evolved uh, whiskey drinker by by any means. Uh, a bunch of you know all my buddies. I mean, I'm 38 now, so all my friends are drinking scotch, and they've all gotten into scotch. And yeah, yeah, they can keep. It. Yeah, it's all about comparing the complexities and the smokiness and the peatiness. But uh, you know, I, I stick with Jameson because it's 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 accessible and I'm not complex. No, Jameson's a fine whiskey. The bar my wife and I go to most often, it's everybody drinks Jameson. Right. Um, it's just for me, I, I'm not a big fan of the dairy flavor and alcohol. Okay. So, so I got to be in the right place to. I got to be in the right mood to drink it. That's usually when I'm buying a shot at the end of the night for everybody. <laughs> All right. So Ken, where can everybody find you online? Um, you find me or find Dead Drift? Find Dead Drift. Okay. So deaddriftshow.com is where you can find the show and behind the scenes pictures and stills of the sets as we're building them. And all the episodes, of course, are up there as well. You can also find us at twitter.com slash deaddriftshow. Uh, that's a great place to interact interact with us. We're frequently on Twitter. And then uh, if you want, you can find us on the Facebook as well, except on Facebook. I think it's dead, uh, facebook.com slash deaddrifter. Uh, Dead Drifter. Dead Drifter, yeah. So unfortunately, I didn't research this too much before creating the show and naming it, but apparently Dead Drift is a uh, fly fishing term that is uh, very heavily uh, used. So if you Google Dead Drift, most likely you're going to get a bunch of fly fishing stuff. Fascinating. Yeah. Huh. Well, you could always use that in a future episode. Yeah, that's actually, actually that's it. Start, pun- start punning on the term a little Fantastic bit. Fantastic idea. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thank you for joining us for what was our 100th episode of Geekish Cast. Ken, thank you for being my 100th uh, episode guest. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. It was awesome to talk to you. It was awesome to use this uh, this episode for that purpose. I've enjoyed your show quite a bit. I would like to encourage everybody who hasn't done so to go watch it. If you have watched Dead Drift, go watch it again. <laughs> All right, everybody, you can find us at geekishcast.com. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekishcast. I tweet from at the geekishcast, and we'll see you all Wednesday.